Have you ever wondered why your prescription drugs cost so much? I mean, why is it that medicines that typically can be made for say five cents or 10 cents or even 50 cents are sold to you at the pharmacy for $15? Where does that money go? I'm Essence Afar, and welcome to another episode of Unfair Nation, the podcast that discusses our nation's rising inequity and social, political, and economic inequality, what it means for you, and what you can do about it. Every other week, we interview one person to get their perspective on structural inequality, and today I'm joined by Merith Basie, a lawyer and advocate in Washington, D.C. vaccine to be developed so that we can go back to work and so that no more lives have to be lost to COVID. But our guest today explains why the pharmaceutical industry has deeper, older, and broader problems, which will affect who ends up getting a COVID vaccine when it comes out and how expensive it will be when it comes out. Her name's Merith Basie. She's a lawyer and an advocate, and she's also the executive director of Universities Allied for Essential Medicines, which is an organization that encourages institutions of higher education to make publicly funded medicine more affordable. She's got some crazy facts about the pharmaceutical industry that will blow your minds, and a hopeful vision for how we can fix the industry through direct involvement by the public. That means you. So let's listen. All right, so your bio will have been done, okay? Okay. I've told everybody already about uh, your mask-wearing escapades, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> they'll know uh, that you go on uh, you go on to the uh, National Mall with a mask and signs and and pictures <laughs> of pills, which either makes you sound a little crazy or. Um, very effective, one or the other. Or a superhero. There when you, you say escapades, it makes me sound like, I was like, that sounds more like a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll go, I'll take it. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for being here, uh, joining me on of the podcast course. on Memorial Day. Yes. Um, Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. I mean, it's not like we're going anywhere. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> that is exactly right. Not anywhere fast, anyway. But I certainly do appreciate, nonetheless, that you took some time out of, of your uh, holiday to, to join me. And you're in Washington, D.C., right? Yes. Physically here, yeah. Um, from my, Calling in from my apartment, but I'm I'm originally from, from the U.K. I couldn't tell. I would never <laughs> be able to pick that up. You know, I went, uh, yeah. I went to a British uh, prep school, so. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I've lost my accent. I was, I was gonna say, dare, dare I ask which one? Yeah, I lost my accent. Oh, it was overseas. It was, it was. Uh-huh. In okay. The Middle East, yeah. Okay. We, you know, nice. we learn time by saying half past ten. Yeah. Half past ten, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Instead As of as it should 10:30. be. Yeah. yeah. We had uniforms yeah. and cardigans and the whole bit. Did you wear? Did you have any hats, boaters, or anything? I think we had sort? hats. Yeah, we had hats, and we did plays, yeah. and uh, it was very cultural yeah uh, yeah well yeah we we had caps 
uh, the boys had caps mm-hmm. in prep school and yeah. we had boaters in the summer. But uh, yeah. that seems like a very long time ago now. Yeah. And my accent is not as strong as it used to be. Oh, so. it's gotten a little bit weaker <laughs> here in the U.S.? Uh, yeah, I spent a long time in, uh, in a few places, including the U.S. And I oh, think okay. uh, it's uh, normally people think I'm Australian, which uh, oh, I find interesting. amusing. Yeah. Well, they, I think they just mm-hmm. don't know the difference. Well, I'm happy to have you and your accent. I think your accent's going to do wonders for the listenership <laughs> of this podcast. So thanks for being here. Well, thank you. So you, you work on uh, reforming the way we purchase and the way uh, we use and perhaps the way that uh, prescription medications are made and marketed inside uh, the U.S. Am I correct in summarizing your work? And if not, can yes. you add more? Yes. I mean, we are pushing for a, a non, uh, non-profit system or a, a biomedical R&D system or the way we make medicines that is uh, not uh, focused on prioritizing profit, but is focused on uh, people's needs first, uh, health needs worldwide. Um, and not just in the U.S., because the U.S., while it's uh, – well, NIH is the largest funder of global health research and in the world. And what's that stand for? The National Institutes of Health, yes, here in, in Bethesda in Washington. Um, but there are many similar entities around the world who are also driving um, publicly funded research. Like in Canada, that's the Center for um, CIHR the Canadian Institute of uh, Health Research. And when you say we, you're referring to your organization, right? Not just to yourself. So we, in the in the broad sense uh, that we fund, it would be uh, the public that funds uh, biomedical research. But we in UAM, at Universities Allied for Essential Medicine, is, uh, yes, it's a collective we uh, who is driving um, campaigns uh, at universities in over 20 different countries around the world. And what's the campaigns? What are they for? What's the problem you're trying to solve? So um, the way we make medicines today, especially people are probably noticing this now more than ever, given Mm -hmm. COVID-19, is failing people. It's prioritizing shareholder profit. Um, So this is why we're seeing high drug prices, you know, drug prices in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, let alone um, massive price increases, you know, over the last decade, like with insulin, a 300% um, increase in a drug that was actually initially developed in 1922. So nearly 100 years later, um, it's being priced out of reach, even though the drugs are off patent. Um, the fact that one in three people in this country cannot afford to pay their prescription drugs, this is a global, this is a crisis. Uh, it's similar figures in different countries around the world. In sub-Saharan Africa, it's one in two. Uh, people don't have regular access to um, to medicines. And this is contrary to the pattern where, you know, the longer things exist in the marketplace, the cheaper they get, right? I mean, in a free market, <laughs> that's what you would anticipate. But what you're seeing, say, with insulin, you know, there are three primary uh, corporations um, Eli Lilly, uh, Sanofi, and Novo Nordisk, who control um, over 90% of the volume of sales worldwide. 
Um, and, and as a result, you see the prices in this country, in the US, increasing in lockstep, which is not, it's anti-competitive behavior, um, which shouldn't, technically it's not legal, but um, we haven't seen um, that shift dramatically. Um, and it's, that's particularly unique to America. Why do you think um, that is unique to America? Uh, it goes to the core of the challenge, I think, in this country, which is that um, the system that has been set up here, um, it really, <laughs> yeah, we don't, we, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't come from a, this understanding that health is a human right. And so it's, it's very much for profit, uh, a for-profit system. Um, and so currently Medicare cannot negotiate drug prices. So given that Medicare is also the largest purchaser of drugs in this country, there is a huge problem there. Uh, but this is, that's particularly um, specific to the United States. Many other countries um, have uh, what you would call like socialized Medicare, medical care, or in the UK we have the national health system, for example. So... Um, which differs in the way that you can enter the system. Um, you're not paying, you're only paying through your taxpayer uh, funds. And, and medications in those countries is Subsidi- Subsidized. Yeah, also because um, it's subsidized because um, the governments work differently and they negotiate with big pharma in a, in a different way. In this country, yeah, I was just going to say that you have about two lobbyists per congressperson uh, on, on Capitol Hill. For, for pharma only. Big pharma. Yeah, for big pharma, exactly. Um, so it is, it's, it, we, to, to really tackle this, um, you really have to get to these, these core pieces. But that is where sort of the organization that I run, uh, Universities Allied for Essential Medicine, comes in because actually most of the R&D um, is funded by by the public, even though this might not appear to be the case for what you read in the press. So $40 billion of public funds goes from the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, as I mentioned, to about 2,500 universities, medical schools in every single state, and in many different countries around the world to fund uh, basic research and also... Uh, clinical trials into new medicines and they tend to fund the riskiest research and it's only when further down the line you have a promising compound or innovation that big big pharma uh, enters the arena if you like so it gets patented by a university and licensed to a pharmaceutical corporation who may then take it through further trials and the university and makes money presumably right when it does this yeah, the university, since in 1980, there was a change in, in the law. There's the uh, Bayh-Dole Act, which allowed universities to profit from their innovations. Prior to that, that was not the case. Um, and now you're seeing, the problem is you're seeing these uh, patents as a proxy for innovation. What does that mean? Can you explain that? Yeah, so... Um, if you're competing just by the number of patents, so if you want, you know, Harvard versus Yale or UCLA, if you're just looking at patents, you're just counting the number of uh, patents that are given to a product. It doesn't actually 
account for impact, right? So you're not, say this was just for medicine, for example, it doesn't actually translate into whether or not that new medicine is saving lives. And sort of whether or not it's on the market is not necessarily the same as people being able to have access or, or afford it, right? Um, so, so there's that piece. Uh, I was just going to say universities play a, a critical role in that drug pipeline because they are really the innovators. It is not these big pharmaceutical corporations who are driving the most innovative research, like things like vaccines, like right now with the with COVID-19 or therapeutics diagnostics. Most of them are starting life in with public money in a university lab. And, and to give you an example, like the last 210 drugs that were approved by the FDA in this country, all of them um, have basic research linked to the National Institutes of Health. That means at, funded by the, the taxpayer. So these, res- these universities are being paid to conduct research on kind of specific or maybe broad problems, right, in science. Mm-hmm. And then the solution that arises out of this research may be a medication. Yes. And then that medication or that formula for that medication is licensed to a pharmaceutical company like Amgen or Gilead Mm -hmm. or something like that. And then those companies sell. And so your um, ask, basically, the piece of your advocacy is, hey, listen, uh, you're charging an exorbitant amount for these medications that were subsidized in effect by the U.S. taxpayer and that, uh, you know, you should give some of that money back and make the medications more affordable because they've been subsidized. You're kind of, uh, you're charging money on the backs of the U.S. taxpayer. Is that, is that the, is that the basic argument? I think that's, yes, the basic argument, exactly. But it's more about like, it's not about not making a profit. It's about not uh, making an excessive profit or profiteering from heavily subsidized um, life-saving medicines. This is not an iPhone, you know, so anyone can live without an iPhone. We live without Mm, iPhones for centuries. This is the difference between life and death. And this is something that we have already paid for in the first place. What's the gap like between, what's that profit gap like? Can you give me some numbers to show you know, are they sure. charging fifty x uh, more than the uh, the what it what it would cost? The next or? country, yeah. So in this country, we pay the highest. We we sort of pay the most for our drugs than any other country in the world. Switzerland and Canada um, come next, and generally, our our uh, the drugs are at least forty percent higher than in Canada. So, uh, for example, there's a drug, a publicly funded drug. It came out of money from the Department of, Fe- of Defense. And the National Institutes of Health developed at um, your alma mater, I understand, at UCLA. Yeah, go um, <laughs> well, I don't know if go Bruins after we're done with this conversation. Yeah, but. well, we'll see. We'll see. You know, uh, this drug was, is a uh, very promising uh, cancer drug for late-stage prostate cancer called Xtandi. Um, and it's being sold... Um, now back to the American taxpayer or people who pay taxes in this country um, at $129,000 for a treatment. The same drug, wow. the same company, is uh, they are being charged in Canada about $29,000. And they're still making a profit on that, right? So 
a lot of the research was funded here and yet other countries, because the way their governments negotiate with big pharma and their systems, they are not being price gouged at the same level. We also know that that drug only costs a few dollars really to make. And so, it, you know, there's no reason for it to be $29,000 either. And you see this again and again. You mentioned Gilead. There was, uh, they became quite well known uh, because of uh, this $84,000 treatment for hepatitis C. Uh, it was actually started life at Emory University. And um, it became the $1,000 Hell. So what what's the rationale that um, what's the rationale that these drug makers use to say hey listen we're charging a hundred thousand dollars more here in the U.S. whereas they can charge twenty nine thousand I mean you said that some of these countries are subsidizing it so does that mean that they're paying a hundred thousand for the pill and then the consumer is only paying twenty nine thousand in Canada? No, not 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 exactly. I mean the the government will be paying something, um, but. The difference is, say, like in the UK, we have the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, which is nice. And they... Indeed uh, it is. (laughs) It is very nice. Um, They have... They negotiate with uh, pharmaceutical corporations. um, And there there is a level to which the British government will say, you know, we are only going to... We are only willing to pay up to this amount for this drug. Uh, you know, and they have the ways that they work that out. Um, and so that doesn't happen in, in, in a country like, like the U S. Um, so you say, yeah, there's no, there's no caps. There's a lot of, a lot of, uh, work, um, and organizations that are pushing for these changes, of course. Um, but the challenge is, I think, um, the, the, the company, you know, the companies are massively profitable. They have a lot of power, um, you know, to influence the government or the administration, um, I should say here. Um, and it's what the, they, they price these drugs at what the market will bear, basically. Um, I don't know if you remember a few years, uh, was it a couple of years ago now? Um, famously, a chap called uh, Martin Shkreli was mm-hmm. uh, known as Pharma Bro. He was uh, in the papers because he raised the price of a drug called Daraprin from $12.50 to $750 overnight. And when he was asked, you know, why did you do this? This is immoral. You know, this was a drug to treat opportunity, uh, opportunistic infections, often for people living with HIV, for example. Um, he said, well, because I could. And it's legal to do that, right? So this is not an illegal practice, whether it's moral or not, or unethical, mm-hmm. you know, is, is, is for you to decide. Um, and, you know, he was interviewed and he got, he became the sort of face in some ways of Big Pharma, but for in the movement that we're part of at UAM, it served as, as he served as this figure <laughs> to highlight what is actually happening uh, with a lot, with a lot of these corporations, because there are no checks and balances in 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 the way that we would like to see them. So, so let me challenge you a little bit about that, right? So, uh, with corporations, the model, the capitalist model, you know, mm-hmm. basically says, "Look, I can charge whatever I want for my products, and if um, the products I charge, the price I charge is too expensive, nobody will buy it, and I'll lower my price, right? I mean, whatever the market mm-hmm. kind of can can demand or bear." 
mm-hmm. what the market can bear essentially is capitalism, right? I mean, mm-hmm. technically speaking, in its in its rawest sense. So, shouldn't the advocacy efforts that you are talking about be aimed at the a subsidizing authority or a regulate regulatory authority like a state government or a federal government? Well, I think there's there's a couple of things here. So, first of all, it's recognizing that the massive investment that the public has already put into these drugs, right? So if you were a private investor, you would expect a return on that investment, wouldn't you? Especially if you'd already put in $10 million to a product. Right. We, as the public, we are not getting that return on our investment um, by having lower, lower price drugs um, as a result. It's, we're paying again through our insurance and then we're paying again at the pharmacy. So that, that, money that is accounted for that 40 billion dollars in the US alone is 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 not included or considered when it comes to um to pricing those drugs right and and to know that this is not just um them making a profit this is you know between 2000 and 2018 i think it was so over 18 years the 35 biggest drug drug companies their combined revenue was $11.5 trillion, $11.5 trillion. And the profit, their sort of gross profit in that was $8.6 trillion. Wow. And th- their medium net income was twice as high that, uh, in those 35 uh, corporations compared to the next 357 companies. Right. So that includes group, you know, oil, that includes Google, that includes, you know, Facebook. These are not small corporations who are struggling, you know. Um, So just to give you some perspective on on what this means and and also recognizing that, again, you know, this is being driven. The innovation is being driven by uh, these uh, our taxpayer dollars. And this is something that I think, you know, is actually pretty bipartisan. People think that we, wherever mm. you sit on, uh, that mm-hmm. if you're investing public money, there should be a return on that investment for the public. Right. So my, my question was, why shouldn't the, why shouldn't that ask be made of the government to say, hey, listen, you've invested our public money in these corporations. They're not, you know, charging an appropriate amount for this medication and profiting enormously on it and that they need to be regulated if they, they if they wish to receive public funds, they must be regulated. Um, they, they must set price caps, for instance. They they should be, and there, there is uh, sort of legislation um, and all sorts of efforts uh, for that to happen. But when you have um, the head of HHS of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, who is a former pharmaceutical CEO mm-hmm. of Eli Lilly, of one of those three pharmaceutical giants that I'm that I mentioned that produce insulin you know it's it's the fox guarding the hen house like how how could you imagine that said individual will be protecting Mm. people's lives over over profits just based on the experiences that he has had and the and the experience that we know that he oversaw that 300 percent increase in insulin over 10 years um in this country so you know there is there are a lot of systemic challenges, which is why also I think pushing for a publicly funded, democratized R&D system um, could also be um, a key part of, of the solution. And I think what we're seeing now with COVID um, 
if we're, we're thinking into the future is this understanding increasingly, I think, um, across labs worldwide, because this is such a global issue, it should be a global shared responsibility in terms of the response. You know, we want to know what is happening in a lab in Germany as much as we want to know what's happening in a lab in China or in the US, because we don't know where that vaccine is going to mm. <laughs> appear or the, or the sort of the closest thing to it. And so having this open and more of an open, collaborative, needs-driven approach, it's obviously that's evidence-based yeah. um, and transparent, is going to be, is, is part of what the push now, I think, for the future needs to be. And going back to the university piece, for us, this is a critical point uh, of inflection or, or pressure because... Uh, if you're able to change the way that universities and publicly funded research institutions passion and license their innovations before they get into the hands of large corporations who have different incentives, then um, we have uh, an opportunity without having to wait for legislation um, to change the system um, and hold universities accountable to their missions. Like UCLA's um, like part of their mission as a research university, you know, sort of this lofty goal is the creation, dissemination, preservation, and application of knowledge for the betterment of our global society. Oh, what a mission it's, statement. <laughs> I, it's impressive. But mm. if they're not making sure that the innovations on their campus or across the UC system right. are accessible, affordable, how, how can they possibly And so that's that? why your organization has that moniker and is focused on universities, right? Your way into this problem is to say, you know, I mean, the target you've, I guess, primarily chosen is to influence all of those public research dollars coming into universities and to say, hey, we'd like you to, we'd like to encourage you to spend these research dollars in a more responsible way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And um, just uh, last week, we, um, we released uh, this new site as well. So folks can look for themselves about the and check the the dollars that are going into their universities. We looked at 60 universities in the US and a number of universities in 13 different countries um, at publicmedsforcovid.org just to sort of track the, the millions, if not billions of dollars already invested uh, to develop new therapeutics and vaccines um, for COVID-19. So you can see where that uh, work is taking place and it's an opportunity for leverage and actually we're pushing uh, a lot of those institutions to sign on to something called the open COVID pledge which is pledging for the duration of the pandemic of, of COVID-19 to uh, to basically make their IP open so it won't be a, a barrier to access um, as we go forward. Even you know some of these giant Corporations like Facebook, um, IBM have have been signing on to this. And while they're not doing, say, vaccine research, they may be developing a technology um, or it could be tracking tool uh, for tracking um, contacts mm-hmm. um, uh, and tracing them that we might need in the future because we know this pandemic will continue uh, to ensure that this is something that can be 
can be more um, easily shared with the world. So if let's let's talk a little bit more about universities, right? So like you said, your um, one of your targets is kind of universities and how they spend research dollars. That's kind of your way into the advocacy mm-hmm. for more responsible uh, for a more responsible pharmaceutical industry. Fantastic. What about the argument that uh, if I'm a public university, let's say UCLA, my funding is declining, especially now with COVID. I'm losing money from all sources. And this remains one of the few ways that as a public institution of higher learning, I can actually make some money. And I use that money to support research and employ students and et cetera, et cetera. Um, If the prices for drugs uh, go down, right? So if I'm now charging 29,000 instead of 100,000, the argument that pharmaceutical company would make is uh, presuming that, uh, well, we're going to just pay a lot less in licensing fees back to UCLA. They'll make a lot less money. They have less incentive to do research. They have less incentive to use research dollars. Does that hold that argument hold any traction? I mean, basically saying that reforming the pharmaceutical industry results in a decline in the revenue for public universities. I would I would disagree with that. So socially responsible licensing, or we call at UAM, we call this global access licensing. This has meant um, when a university, say, patents a drug, um, they will Mm. license it with a non-exclusive license. So that means that if if a corporation wants to develop a drug, they can go ahead and develop it, but it doesn't prevent a second or third or fourth or fifth company, um, especially a generic, um, from also choosing to develop that drug. Right. So to give an Mm -hmm. example, um, actually how the organization was founded in, in 2001, it was the height of the HIV AIDS crisis. There was a drug that had been developed at Yale university, um, with public funds. Um, and it was being sold at a price that was high in the U S but even higher, uh, relatively, for uh, South, South Africa, where the burden of disease was. And South Africa's mm-hmm. government were looking to develop, um, to treat people living with HIV in conjunction with uh, Doctors Without Borders for the first time. And, uh, but they realized that the price that was set, they were never going to be able to, to, c- to carry out the, the program that they wanted. And they realized that this drug uh, developed at Yale um, it was obviously part of the, the problem. And some young uh, HIV AIDS activists who were starting at um, the university organized um, because they didn't want their university to be complicit in the deaths of thousands of South Africans. Mm-hmm. And so what they did was they lobbied their administration and they persuaded their university to change the license from an exclusive license with Bristol Myers Squibb, which was the corporation that was developing this drug in the United States, um, to a non-exclusive license, uh, which meant that a generic uh, company in India who had already been making the drug um, were able to uh, legally then sell it to the government of South Africa um, outside India. And it meant that Doctors Without Borders were able to 
treat people living with HIV for the first time, and it led to a 90% reduction in the price of that drug. So massive shift, right? So we know that when there's competition, as you sort of mentioned free markets earlier, when there is competition, drug prices um, obviously will get uh, reduced. And the more competition, the lower the drug uh, price. So... um, so globally responsible, globally or responsible, socially responsible licensing or global access licensing is, uh, encourages sort of non-exclusive licensing in that Could way. Could it also mean like a price cap um, in the licensing agreement, mandating a price cap? It, each license will be different. These are sort of principles, right? So like it will depend on, mm. um, on, on that agreement. Um, so it really, it really depends. Um, and historically, this focus and like that story um, or the founding story was about access in, in a lower income country, right, from a, a drug that was developed in the United States in this case. Um, we have shown and there's, there's evidence and peer-reviewed articles um, uh, that shows that with that particular case, um, the university didn't actually lose any money as a result, Right. So, because they weren't they weren't actually selling any product in right. that part of the world anyway. So you're actually introducing a market, um, you could argue, as well. Um, so, so back to, to your point of UCLA or other publicly funded universities losing money. Um, it's also part of a bigger system because if they're also supporting uh, paying healthcare and <laughs> healthcare for their employees and uh, paying for drugs, like that will. You're, end, you're ending up paying for it anyway. Right. Um, right. So, you know, if you're not paying for it up front, you'll pay for it somewhere well, yeah, else. Yeah, UCLA so, specifically because they run a very large hospital network, right? Mm-hmm. So, so then they're paying for a high price to purchase that, that those medicines. Although they would argue that their insured patients or Medicare and Medi-Cal patients are then subsidizing the cost. <laughs> so UCLA gets off scot-free. But Medicare, a third of those, you know, as the biggest... Uh, funder, uh, purchaser of those drugs, um, you know, someone is paying, and the the people who end up paying is the public in right. different degrees, multiple times. Which so means it's then just, less tax <laughs> revenue for the UC system. I see how this yeah. works. Yeah, so so it's unfortunately it's all connected, mm. um, and simply we've already paid for it <laughs> so the way the way i'm understanding it is like if i if i were to compare it to great britain right which is the example mm-hmm. that you used right so mm-hmm. in great britain mm-hmm. the government steps in they subsidize the cost of medications and they do so through their kind of economic power right their purchasing power mm-hmm. in the u.s the government steps out instead of doing a subsidizing of of uh uh, medicines, they just give $40 billion. You know, instead of using that $40 billion to subsidize the purchase of medication, they just give a lot of that to research, which in a roundabout way ends up subsidizing pharmaceutical companies. And so uh, some of the work it seems like to me that you're trying to do is to, you know, kind of go around that weird, uh, you know, like... Uh, kind of it's like two or three steps removed from direct government subsidization and you're saying hey listen just let's close the gap yeah i mean if it, yes and don't forget the uk is still funding research as well right so right. it's not that it's an either or That's situation right. um the the piece that i think is important 
uh, to understand, like, if if we're talking about inequality as well in this country, this system is driving inequality. Tell me more about that. If you think about the pri- these increase in the price of drugs right now and the fact that one in three people in this country can't afford their prescription drugs, and that was pre-COVID, and you think of the huge numbers, the millions of mm-hmm. people who now have no health insurance and have no jobs and no support. I, I it, like The mind boggles and it's terrifying to think how many people now right. are excluded from that system. And then if you're offered, you do have the privilege of getting to see a caregiver, <laughs> provider, uh, and then you're offered a drug at a price that you, you can't afford. Um, who, what options? What options do you have? Do you then decide between the mortgage and your health? Do you decide, you know, between food? And these are the the shocking decisions that people are having to make. You know, if you have insulin, if you need insulin, paying a couple hundred dollars per month just to survive is is unacceptable and it's immoral when you know that that drug was developed over 100 years ago or a version of it um, with taxpayer money on a university campus um, in Canada. So if we take regulation out of the situation, right, if let's say we make this argument about broader inequality, is that an incentive for pharmaceutical companies minus regulation to to, to lower their drug prices or put another way, what is the business incentive for a pharmaceutical company to um, make drug prices cheaper or more affordable rather? That you've, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head as it were. This is what we're um, trying to do here. <laughs> uh, there is no incentive currently um, because, yes, um, and it, it's hard, it, it's, it is legal but it's because wait, what is legal? They they are allowed. They you know legally they're not breaking the law by having these um, high drug prices because they are accountable to their shareholders. Mm. That that is whatever pharmaceutical um, video you see or ad, just you know take a step back and think about <laughs> uh, who are they accountable to, and it is not to the people. And this is where the challenge lies. And I think, you know, Usually when I'm seeing those ads, all I'm thinking about is the the insane side effects, you know, like death. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you're just like, uh, two things to think about when you see those ads. Mm. Two high income countries Mm -hmm. allow direct to consumer marketing. The United States and New Zealand, interestingly enough. um, Where you're from. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that other place that i'm from um, um ex- exactly um they these two um nations are allowing um uh, pharmaceutical corporations to um advertise including obviously the the small print that you mentioned like including death <laughs> um but you have to question why, if I need insulin, well, I don't need an advert telling me sure. that I need insulin. If you have cancer, you do not need some, um, some television ad telling you that you need a specific 
drug. And going back to, you know, the high drug prices piece, we know that uh, pharmaceutical corporations spend at least two to four times on sales and marketing than they do on R&D, right? So into that new research. So um, these are all areas, like think of the amount of money that goes into those ads that you see. Uh, And they're very convincing, (laughs) but they are not the full picture. And in reality, uh, these new innovations, the the ones that really are life-saving, thinking about COVID right now is the prime example who is driving that research? When you see an, uh, a, um, a headline, like recently there was something that said J&J, nonprofit vaccine, you know, something or other. Um, and it sounds, it sounds great. You think nonprofit vaccine sounds great. But then if you actually dig in, you realize that, first of all, the public has already invested $500 million into this product which is still a very long way from being delivered, of course. And two, they said not-for-profit, they were going to be sold at $10 per, per vaccine, which if you, if you do the calculations, that's mm-hmm. going to come to about a $10 billion profit from a yeah. pandemic. Quite off. a non-profit, huh? Yeah, yeah, I don't know exactly. I don't know what you consider non-profit, but certainly not that. Um, you know, when you think of the scale of this issue um, and, and the challenge that we face right now, and we're, you know, we're pushing at UAM in partnership with another organization called the Center for Artistic Activism for a campaign, we're calling it Free the Vaccine for COVID-19. And what we are pushing for is a uh, di- publicly funded diagnostics, you know, therapeutics and the eventual vaccine to be sustainably priced um, available to all and free at the point of delivery. And what we mean by sustainably priced means that governments are not being price gouged. Like we know that we're already paying for it. So it's not technically free, right? Uh, So um, there's that piece. It should be free at the point of delivery. There shouldn't be a copay uh, um, anywhere in the world um, if there's not going to be barriers to access for people and the other piece available to all, regardless of insurance status or regardless of immigration status, you know, if we want a vaccine to work, um, appropriately, we are need, we're going to need to vaccinate as many people as possible so that we can eventually achieve herd immunity. Mm. And that won't happen if, if large chunks of the population worldwide are, are excluded. So I have a question for you. Some of the problems you've outlined make it, you know, seem like, well, let me, let me put this another way. It is a long-term solution to some of these problems to privatize the research and production and dissemination of pharmaceuticals? Just like we do it with healthcare, you know, in in, in, in Great Britain, we have a healthcare system that's um, rather not privatized. Sorry, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What's I would go with democratize. Of, right? What's the <laughs> Publicly. Of, well, so in in Great Britain, we have a, a public health system that is in government yes. hands, right? Yeah, a and national healthcare system, national yeah, healthcare nationalized. System. So should yeah. we have a, that, That's the word. So should we then nationalize? Um, pharmaceutical uh, the pharmaceutical companies and have the production distribution of pharmaceuticals um, and medications be be in government hands 
Yes, I think so. Uh, and I think there is there a lot go. of evidence. That's your new to mission. You're welcome. <laughs> That's, there's a so lot. easy. <laughs> They're so easy, yeah, sure. Uh, there, are, there are other groups um, who are pushing pushing for these ideas. Uh, you know, a publicly funded, democratized R&D system. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this would be a critical part of the solution. And, and we at UAM also believe that the R&D system, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there are alternatives. It doesn't mean blow up, you know, big pharma tomorrow. We need them to make medicines, but they they don't need to do it uh, at the extortionate price. Yeah, um, maybe a hybrid system. They're doing it, yeah, and having having competition, and I think having those proposals to, you know, for the, the most critical essential medicines to be uh, developed entirely by um, with the, with public funds, um, and manufactured, of course. Um, and I think, uh, I think that would be a key, obviously we need legislation nationwide health, uh, healthcare plan, like Medicare for all, uh, would also play, play a key role because it would save its estimate public citizen estimated that, um, they would save about $500 billion just on administration. Uh, and even the Koch brothers, (laughs) even the Koch brothers, found that it would save money, yeah. which is, you know, those are strange bedfellows. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like a system like the, the, I mean, not exactly like the system, but a system like the post office, right, where you have a delivery mm-hmm. system that is in quasi-government hands because mm-hmm. it does things and it reaches people that a profit incentive can't reach. And then you have UPS and FedEx for those times where you need to have a, a profitized or privatized yeah. system, you know, reach these, uh, you know, places where post office is not as efficient, but you have both. Exactly. And you have the option. I think, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of different arguments, um, but ultimately uh, these shifts, there, there, there are, for example, there's an organization um, called the Drugs for Neglected Diseases Initiative, and this is something we haven't touched on yet, but how the current system fails um, is because we don't focus on diseases of the poor historically. Yeah. A lot of the current system focuses on drugs that will make a profit or people that can afford to buy them. Mm. Right. So the current system is failing in the sense that one in six people globally live with a neglected disease. And yet um, from the research we've done at UAM, you see that universities about less than 3% of their research dollars go to uh, to research neglected tropical diseases. And uh, this group, DNDI, they, their history, they come out of Doctors Without Borders because Doctors Without Borders realized in the field that they weren't even drugs for the diseases that they were trying to treat their, their patients with. And so they were like... And that's because there's no incentive for these companies to develop these drugs, right? There's Because of the system, exactly, because it's set up uh, putting profit at the center rather than people and needs, we're seeing these failures. And so the Drugs for Neglected Disease Initiative, what they, they can bring a product uh, to market, uh, they estimate uh, for around $110 million, which is not nothing, but compared to the estimates that the big pharma will suggest in mm-hmm. the billions, which is which is including their prices for sales and marketing and all these things, um, is, is significantly different. And they've been able to, um, like most recently, 
they were able to bring forward one of the first uh, treatments for um, sleeping sickness, which would never have been researched uh, or developed um, had they not prioritized that need. So um, what my point is that there are these different mechanisms that are, are being encouraged and promoted and universities can also play a key role in being the drivers of these alternative mechanisms. Now, what about students? Can they get involved? Yes. So all of our work is actually driven by students. So while we have, um, we have students in 20 different countries around the world, um, our campaigns are entirely driven by students. We have a small staff. Um, in Brazil, Brazil, Berlin, and, and Washington, D.C. Um, and the way that we organize is students organize on their campuses to, to push university administrations to, to engage on this issue and hold them accountable. Um, and so and, do you have chapters all over uh, mm -hmm. campuses? Yes. So uh, across North America, we have uh, chapters at over 50 different um, research institute, yeah, research institutions. And do you think COVID nineteen um, is an opportunity to change this? Some of the problems you've outlined around affordable medications. Yes, one hundred percent. And I think it is the moment. I think we cannot, we cannot go back. I think in this country, if people cannot recognize now uh, the need for a system that puts people first. I can't imagine that they ever will. Um, and I think um, the fact that we are all struggling for a solution and that probably until a vaccine arrives, uh, the return to, I don't think there will be a return to, to normal life, but I do think um, it is now more clear than ever that we need uh, a global uh, solution, that it should be shared, this shared responsibility, that we need to be pushing for these new models so that we are preventing this happening again. Because I think it's all very well to clap for our health workers, but if we really want to honour those essential workers, I think what we need to do is promise them that we're not going to put them in this Yes. Uh, situation in the future. And that is the only, the, and, and the people, the 100,000 uh, people in this country alone who've lost their lives, the only solution is to commit to something better. And something better are these new alternatives that are implementable. We're not imagining something that is impossible. This is something that is here. We just need to, to push for these, um, these uh, open, collaborative, needs-driven solutions. Um, so that we don't find ourselves in this situa situation in another five years' time. So how does somebody get involved in working on some of these issues if they're listening today and right now? What, what can they do? They can get involved, I presume, with your organization. If they're a student, they can join the chapter. What else can they do? Yeah, yeah. So we have, uh, obviously, student chapters. If you're faculty, um, you know, we started uh, with with lawyers. We have a lot of lawyers oh, and uh, big public health, public health. Um, but really, any any student or faculty person who feels moved 
to do something, we would love to hear from you because, uh, you know, we would love to see more and more universities signing on to the Open COVID pledge now during this pandemic and seeing this as a ladder of engagement really for universities to start by signing on to this and then beginning these other conversations around all essential medicines, not just um, those for COVID. So students, faculty, um, obviously you can go to uh, our website, uam.org, to donate, but also we the Free the Vaccine campaign. Uh, it's freethevaccine.org. Um, there's a Take Action uh, page there where you can you can take action depending on how many minutes you have, whether you want to sign on to something oh, you cool. want to support. Yeah. So we that should be um, updated. You can sign up for um, instant updates. We're doing a lot of creative uh, things right now to engage um, to engage researchers and faculty to think about these issues. And, um, you know, this, this work is also aligned with, there was a letter that some people might have seen that Oxfam and UNAIDS uh, delivered uh, a week or two ago, uh, and it had 140 world leaders or former mm. world leaders um, uh, signing on to this letter. And, and the goals are very much aligned with our Free the Vaccine campaign uh, that I mentioned earlier about a vaccine being sustainably priced, available to all and free at the point of delivery. So um, we're all engaged and pushing for these solutions. And I think uh, the more people who begin to understand that another way is possible um, and and would like to support um, a solution and, 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 and take some agency or have some agency at a time where I feel like there's a lot of people who are you know, at home, anxious, not sure how to connect and, and feeling very uh, isolated. I think yes. we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, awesome. We'll, we'll link to your site in our show notes and also to some of the resources you've uh, shared. Um, hey, listen, thanks for joining us for this last hour on the podcast. This was fantastic. It was an absolute pleasure to have you. I'm sure we could go for another two hours and we might ask you to come <laughs> back um, uh, and talk more about this because I know there's issues that we haven't covered like um, antibiotics, for instance, is one. Mm -hmm. And we've just talked about North America specifically, but we could talk yeah. about North America broadly um, and do some more comparative um, discussions. But um, it was an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you for making the time and for, for doing all the things that you do uh, to try to make medications affordable for, for, for most of us. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, really appreciate you uh, giving, giving us a chance to, uh, to share some of our work. Yeah, please do. We'll, we'll put it up on our website and uh, make sure you stick it to my alma mater. Okay. I will. I will. I'm going to call you on that. <laughs> We're going to have some alumni calls for sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thanks for listening to another episode of unfair nation we've got some great guests lined up for you over the coming weeks but we're going to take a little bit of a break and do a short episode to answer some questions that all of you have sent in i hope you'll enjoy that episode and if you'd like me to do more just tweet me your questions or subscribe to our newsletter on unfairnation.com and drop us a note as always thanks for listening and rating and reviewing our podcast and since he stuck around until the end, here's a little outtake. Enjoy. 
Yes, your vo- your voice sounds like a radio announcer voice. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds very calm and soothing. <laughs> ladies and yeah, yeah. That's how it's supposed to go movie announcer in a yes, world. Yes, exactly. Right. Yes, in a world. Right, where... <laughs> right, right. Okay, good. Um, all right, I should use this voice for my dating profile. Either it'll scare exactly. everybody, or it'll, it'll, it'll work, or it'll scare everybody. I, I'm sh- I'm sure it would work well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Good to have that recommendation. 